Hi, this is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. We're a local D.C. show that focuses on foreign and domestic policy, national politics, and culture. Today, we're speaking with Sheila Waisaki. Sheila is a private investigator who provides clients with different investigative solutions. What fascinates me most about Sheila is she's committed to solving cold cases. You can learn more about her at SheilaWysaki.com. You're not going to want to miss this. We'd like to recognize Make-A-Wish Foundation. Make-A-Wish America serves a unique and vital role in helping strengthen and empower children battling life-threatening medical conditions. You can learn more about them at wish.org. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. And we're back on Right in D.C. We're talking with Sheila Waisaki, who is joining us by phone today. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Sheila is a mom PI, a mother private investigator. And I learned about Sheila from one of my favorite source materials, People Magazine, that profiled her and her story, her experience, and what compelled her to not just be a mom, but also to get interested in private investigation. And Sheila, that article was really fascinating to me. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences that compelled you to get into private investigation? Um, back in 1980s, I went to college at Southern Methodist University, and um, I was rooming with a young lady named Angela Samoda. And unfortunately, Angela, Angie is what we called her, was murdered. And um, through that process, I worked with the police uh, while I was, you know, I dropped out of college and I worked with the police and then got married and moved away. And 20 years later, um, I won the case reopened and there were a lot of things that um, happened to, to make me know it was the right time. And they didn't and, arrest anybody for the murder when it occurred or soon thereafter? No, but they had a suspect and they were very firm on who the suspect was. And so I believe that they knew who murdered her. And I felt like, you know, in our system, if you have the evidence, they they told me they had the evidence. They should have arrested him and Angie would have gotten justice. That didn't happen. So 20 years later, um, the case was reopened. And after the case was reopened, um, I tried to get the police department to work with me. And they really didn't want to. Why so didn't they want to work with you? Well, I think that uh, going in and telling them how to do their job doesn't really work very well. <laughs> and so I went in and told them how I thought they should do their job and um, wasn't received very well. I now know what not to do. And that was the number one thing not to do. And so uh, they finally put me together. At first, they were telling me, OK, so they were telling me things like we lost the file. The file was in a flood. And they kept telling me all the reasons that the evidence wasn't there. 
And for whatever reason, I just kept going and going and going. And finally, I got my PI license thinking that the uh, Dallas police would just open up their arms and welcoming, you know, to work with them, which did not happen. Is it hard to get a private investigator license in Texas? Well, I didn't get one in Texas. I originally went for Tennessee. I am licensed in Texas now, but um, that's because I've cases there. But um, it depends on who you ask. If you ask somebody who's a lawyer, no, it's not hard to get a license or a judge. They're they're just like, "Ah, it's nothing. But I worked with uh, homicide detectives to learn the the trade and took a test. Um, I'm dyslexic, so it was probably a little harder for me than other people. Oh, yes. And you had small children at this time as well? I did. I did. How old were they? Um, actually my oldest was around 11 and then my other one was around seven, eight, you know, so and my oldest one was really involved in helping me study and, and going through the tests and he's the one who's going to be the attorney. So he's really into this stuff. That's great. And you had a vision. You, you just couldn't get your former roommate out of your mind. Is that correct? That is correct. So I was studying Beth Moore's Daniel and I was Beth Moore. Beth Moore is um, she teaches Bible studies all over the nation. And so I took her class at one of the churches. And at that time, um, doing homework still is not my thing. So I was getting through the homework process and leaning back in my bedroom And whether or not I was in that alpha stage or just laying there, I saw a vision of Angie. She was exactly, I mean, to this day, I can see that moment. And so I knew at that second I needed to call the Dallas Police Department. And so that's what I did. I called the Dallas Police Department, asked for the detective that I worked with originally. Uh, He had moved traffic and uh, tried to get him to do something. And had you stayed in touch with her family all these years, or was it too painful to maintain that connection? Um, Her family, no. Her family, uh, I was not close with her family at all. And how did they feel? Did they know that you were pushing the police to reopen the investigation and try to identify a suspect? No. Um, Her family... So when I called the Dallas Police Department, they said nobody had called in 20 years. So nobody, and actually I'll never forget that moment. I, I, it made me cry because to think that nobody pushed for her to get justice, she deserved it. She was a great girl and, you know, it could be anybody's daughter. So I felt like, you know, I have children, I have a different perspective than I did back in college, but she was my friend, but now it was a little more personal being a mom. Right. And a mother's heart is a powerful thing, right? It is a very determined thing. And you had mentioned that the police said they had identified a suspect, but it sounds like they had not released his name to the public. Did the person who ended up being identified and prosecuted for the murder of your roommate. Was it the same person? Did you find that out? It was not. It was not. Um, The evidence 
that they had back in the 80s was um, they said that the young man that saw her last, and his name is, he and I are friends. Um, he knows that I, uh, what I was doing, I had dinner with him trying to get information, um, you know, helping oh. the police. So uh, lots has changed since then. So he, uh, his name is Russell Buchanan. He doesn't mind me using it because it is the story. Um, but I will tell you, after the trial, I met with Russell because I had tried and tried to get him to confess. And um, he and I sat down. He told me everything that happened to him, how he's treated, what happened to him, how he's brought into the police department. And I said, well, let me tell you the flip side. So I told him about the police talking about following him and um, some of the things that he did or what the police did. Um, so Russell and I um, had that moment where I was like, you know, I just need to ask for your forgiveness. I need to ask you to forgive me for all the things that I had done and thought. And he's such a great guy. We're good friends now. We travel together. I mean, he's just a great guy. And how did he respond to your request for forgiveness? He actually thanked me. He said if I wasn't persistent, he would still be a suspect. And he probably didn't follow through with the police over that 20 years. You said nobody had called the police for 20 years. I assume he didn't follow up with it because he didn't want to get the suspicion put back on him. Did did you discuss that with him at all, why he didn't pursue it? He didn't pursue it because he didn't want to end up, um, you know, being a suspect again. Right, right, right. And so who ended up being revealed as the criminal actor? He, his, he was a serial rapist. Um, we don't know if he murdered more than just my roommate, but um, his name is, I call him the beast. His name is Donald Bess, and he is now in death row in Texas. And did he know her before the incident or was she a complete stranger to him? He had uh, an MO. He was, a, she was a complete stranger. He it was Texas OU weekend, which is a big deal down in Texas. He probably saw her out um, at a bar or um, a dance disco back then and followed her and never knew her beforehand. And how did you feel once the police had charged him with the, with this crime? I was actually stunned and I didn't quite believe it at that moment. And I remember calling the assistant DA, uh, who's, who was great and said, you know, are you sure you have the right guy? Because all along I've been told it's a different person. Right. And what was their response? Well, the DNA, I mean, you can't beat that DNA. It's like 1 billion to one. And how was he in their DNA database to begin with? You said he was a serial rapist. Had he been convicted of other rapes? Yes. He was actually on parole when he uh, raped Angie from a 1977 rape. And uh, so they had his DNA. So you took from this experience, you were empowered to get your PI license despite being dyslexic, despite having family obligations to your children, and you didn't just stop with this case. 
you continued to go ahead and try to help other people solve crimes that have been cold for a long time. How did you make that transition from really caring about this case about your former roommate to deciding that you wanted to help other people? Actually, when the trial was over, I wanted to retire my license because I only cared about one case. That was it. I was done. And um, I there was just a little blurb about it, um, one of the uh, reporter. And all of a sudden I started getting letters and it was letters of people. And I still get them uh, people that have cold cases and need help. And so I thought each one of those people. Every single one of them deserves to be heard. So I started returning calls and helping people. And would these families rely on your experience from your involvement in this one case? Or, you know, were they really just looking desperately for anyone who would be able to help them when all the doors had been shut in their faces? You know, Gail, here's what I think it is. I think people want to be heard. I think they want to know that somebody actually hears them and cares. And I still feel that way every time I talk to them. And I think that they rely on, I have a team of people that I work with. I uh, find the best of the best, where whatever. If we need a DNA person, I'm flying to California. If I need, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to find that person. So they rely on my, I guess, Rolodex. And how many people have contacted you because a family member was uh, died and they were informed by the police that the family member committed suicide, but they couldn't accept that, that they thought they thought that their family member had been murdered? A lot. <clears throat> there are too many for me to count. And generally, I do have the suicide. You know, they, they say, well, the police said it was suicide. And a lot of times going into it, it's not suicide. And a lot of times people don't even know how to read a death certificate where it's undetermined versus, you know, what undetermined means. So, you know, they may have been told it was suicide, but it's undetermined on the death certificate. So it's really not. And did this surprise you to hear so many of these cases? Because I think presumably people think that the police investigated, you have the medical examiner, as you mentioned, and they're the experts to try and understand a scene and make a judgment about what the causes were. Um, did it surprise me? Yes, it still surprises me. But on the flip side, the police departments never have enough money. And there are 15,000 deaths every year. Someone's killed every how many minutes. So all those families are looking for answers. Not all of the families have the answers. And so a lot of times it boils down to money. And they, the police department doesn't have it. There are too many of them. And there are, I believe, the last I heard, 7,000 unsolved uh, murders in Dallas alone. 7,000 in Dallas alone. That is astonishing. And what do you think it is that, I mean, besides the financial constraints on the police department, why do you think it is that we accept all of these cold cases and that as a society, we're not trying to do what you're doing to get to the bottom of these very important occurrences. 
Um, there's several factors, actually. I think that uh, getting into this kind of career or profession, you you see the worst of the worst in people. It takes a certain kind of person that can go through it. And, and as I work with families, I am a grief counselor. I am an investigator. I am their friend. Um, I'm their advocate. I work with medical examiners, police departments, um, reenactments. I mean, all of it. And I take a lot of heat from, you know, I'm not making friends across the country. The only people that like me generally are the families. That's right. But you feel like justice is on your side and you're helping people who are being maybe ignored or marginalized by uh, the, the people who should be helping them, maybe because they don't have enough money, maybe, you know, the police departments, but they certainly are not seeing justice served. No. And, and a lot of times, uh, the, there's something that's always key in every one of my cases. The, the mother is always at, told she's crazy. You know, they act like she's the crazy, oh, grieving oh. mom. And that theme is every single one of my cases. And I know exactly, um, you know, when they call that first phone call, I know the voice. I know what they've been told. And they have been beaten up. And they know better. I haven't had a mom come to me that didn't have that feeling that knew something wasn't right and had some evidence. And I don't ignore it. You got to look at it. I can't take every case, though. <laughs> so. Right, right. I'm sure you're in very high demand, especially after that People magazine article uh, yes. that did a very nice profile on you. Do you have any insights from your work in this area of why Americans are so fascinated with this? We had the Anatomy of a Murder series. We had the Serial podcast. And certainly in just the D.C. area, we have many unsolved crimes, some very high profile, and it seems like there's an endless fascination with uh, this type of criminal behavior and the justice system and the interaction of the two. I think that people want to see justice, but I also believe people know it could be them. I never thought going to a private university in a very safe area that I would know somebody who's been raped and murdered. It could be anybody's daughter, friend, mother, sister. Um, So I think people relate to that. And I also think that people like to see justice served. They don't want the bad guy to get away. And I'll give you an example. In um, one of the cases I'm working on right now, the police have said to the family, we believe this person will kill again. Now, think about that. That person is out there right now, and the police believe they're going to do it again. It's bone chilling to think about. We had some famous cases in Virginia. I don't know if you noticed them on the national news, but... There was a Virginia Tech student who walked out of a Metallica concert in Charlottesville, Virginia, and was not seen again. They, for many years, could not identify her killer. And then there was a second-year student, sophomore at the University of Virginia, who went missing. And because they were able to identify the killer in that case, they were also able, through the DNA and other evidence that they had to tie that same person back to the 
old, I would say, cold case of the Virginia Tech student who had died, been killed after the Metallica concert. Do you have tips based on your investigation of all of these cases, and in particular your your experience with your former roommate, that young women, especially college-age women, should heed to protect themselves, to, to make them not victims of opportunity? Um, you know, I used to say you could protect yourself and it, it may not happen, uh, you know, if you do these things. But honestly, doing these cases, it could be a moment in time that something went wrong. It's a perfect storm. And so you re- really never know. I think that um, sometimes Times in not all my cases, alcohol becomes a problem when you drink too much and you're not aware of your surroundings. But, you know, that's not always the case. And sometimes it's being with the wrong people at the wrong time, but you don't know it. So there is it. You just have to be aware and careful. And I personally believe you go in packs and you um let people know where you are. I love that we have phones now with locators on it. Um, I'm a firm believer in telling people where you are. There are apps to, to, you know, if you're nervous, you hit it. There are a lot of things there, but, you know, it could happen in a split second to anybody. That's right. I hope all the teenagers who are listening to this understand that when their parents want to know where they are, it's because they're trying to make sure that they're safe, not because they're trying to to uh, be snoopy on them, right? <laughs> oh, that is so true. So true. And to this you know, day, I have two sons, one in uh, law school and one in college. I want to know where they're going. If they're going out for one of mine goes to Canada, I want to know where he is. Right. It's just good practice, right? Right. Do you have anything else to add that you think would be of use to our listeners or anything that you're working on right now that we should be aware of? I, you know, the one thing that I I would love for people to know, if you um, unfortunately have this happen to you, I believe you need to work with the press. The number one thing that I am firm on, no matter what you're told, you work with the press. You are the number one story all day long. If you have a missing daughter or son, you make sure you're there headline each day. Right. And I think some families have effectively used an anniversary of the disappearance or the birthday to stage press conferences and regenerate interest in these cold cases. Is that Has that been your experience too? Yes, and they need to. But if if it happens, that moment it happens, they get somebody to be out there every day helping. And I believe in communities helping with tips and stuff. I actually, this is an area I'll probably get a lot of hate mail from investigators, but I don't believe you keep everything quiet. You can keep one or two things quiet, but it could be one thing that turns the case that somebody saw in the community. That's a great point. And if you hold back that information, you might not have that link in the chain to discover what really happened. Right. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on Right in DC. And we look forward to talking with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in BC. Music provided by local band Trio Caliente. Visit their website at triocaliente.com or sample their music on iTunes. We also want to give a special thank you to Hillsdale College. We are recording today's podcast at the Kirby Center on Capitol Hill. Hillsdale College is located in South Central Michigan, and you can learn more about the college at hillsdalecollege.edu. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and hear me every week on iTunes. This is Gail Trotter, right in D.C. Right in D.C.